Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Adia Depatan, MBE, is a TV presenter, a journalist, an author, and a former international Paralympic wheelchair basketball player. Adi survived polio when he was just 15 months old, but has since built a wealth of broadcasting experience and succeeded as an international Paralympic sportsman. Adi has investigated a number of stories across the world and is a regular reporter for the BBC's The One Show. And if all this wasn't enough, Adi supports multiple charities and has opened his own community centre, the Adi Adepatan Short Break Centre, for people with learning disabilities and as well physical disabilities. On a sporting level, Adi achieved bronze in Athens at the Paralympics, silver in the European Championships, and no less than gold in the World Championships. An incredible career, one that is very, very hard to do justice in a short introduction, but we get to hear from the great man himself. Adi Adepatan, welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. I am humbled, very humbled, <laughs> uh, not only for all that you've achieved, but just for finding the time to be with us. So thank you in anticipation of the very many lives you're about to change. <laughs> thank you so much, Sandro, for that great introduction. Um, I, I, I can't believe, you know, half those things that you managed to find that I've done. That's, uh, that's amazing. Good research. Uh, <laughs> also, also makes me feel like I'm... Flipping old. Get all that stuff done. Well, the other other thing that we shouldn't overlook, I think you are now part of a duo, the first first brothers to be on the Sandro Forte podcast because we had your rather lovely brother, Olu, with us not long ago. Um, But but of course, it wasn't just Olu who who told us that we should be speaking to you, but I've heard your name mentioned that many times. It was getting frustrating that we couldn't get to speak to you. But anyway, here we are. It happened finally. So let's, uh, let's take maximum advantage of the 30 minutes we've got together. Thank you again for, for joining us. So with, no with such an amazing CV, Addy, um, we need to know, first of all, where it all started. A little bit about your background. Um, and in particular, you know, surviving polio at a young age, and I know you refer to yourself as old, you're not at, at all. But, you know, back in the day, uh, medical treatment and and rehabilitation was not what it is today. So you know it was quite a journey for you in those in those early days. I, I Sandra, I just found out that I'm a year younger than Idris Elba. Flipping hell! <laughs> and I've, I've got far <laughs> left grey ears. You can mention that to him <laughs> if you ever get into the podcast. Um, where did it start? Where did it start? So um, it, my as you as you mentioned, I contracted polio when I was younger. I contracted polio at the age of 15 months. And it's really, it's strange when I think about it because uh, I wouldn't say my disability is, defines me and and defines my life, but it had a huge impact on, um, on my life in terms of the fact that when I contracted polio, I contracted it at 15 months of age. I was born in Lagos, Nigeria, and my parents were then forced into making a very, very big decision. Um, 
basically my older sister who's only just a, just a year older than me. She was born with Downs, Down syndrome. So my parents suddenly found themselves with two children with disabilities in Lagos, Nigeria in the seventies where facilities were not exactly um, geared up for people with complex needs. Um, and my parents had this really difficult decision to, to make as to, um, you know, what they would do to give us the best opportunities in life. And my dad decided that we should move to the UK, um, but they couldn't afford to bring us both over. Um, they could only afford to bring uh, one of us over immediately at, at the beginning. Um, and even then they had to borrow money from friends and family and use all their savings and leave everyone behind. And they chose me because I couldn't walk and they saw, they felt that my physical needs put me more um, in danger in Nigeria. The fact that I couldn't walk and I couldn't get around meant that I wasn't going to be able to go to a mainstream or I wasn't going to be able to go to school full stop. Um, and and there were a whole vast other array of, of complex needs that, I, that they felt I had. Um, and so they left my sister behind and it was a heartbreaking decision for them. You know, and I can't imagine what it must have been like um, to have to decide between your two children. Um, and the idea was they would take me to the UK um, and uh, after the, you know, the first couple of years, they would hopefully raise uh, enough money from work to then be able to afford to bring my sister over. Um, so when we came over to the UK, uh, I, the, everything else ensued, finding me a school, getting used to, um, you know, living in a different country, learning a new language. Um, but it eventually, it, it took 10 years before my parents were able to raise the funds to bring my sister over. And during that period, I and my family, we all had to carry that guilt of knowing that I was the lucky one and that my sister had been left behind. And so all of that, all of that stuff, you know, that story of my life in the early days, I had a massive impact and it made me grow up quicker. It made our family, uh, who we are today, a lot stronger and a lot closer. Um, but it was a really emotional start to our lives, yeah. And how was growing up in London then in the 80s after your move from Nigeria? Uh, any particular challenges? You know, uh, a young boy in a new country, learning a new language with all of those challenges. What, what were the particular issues that, that Addy faced then? Well, the first issue uh, was, um, so let, let me explain a little bit more about my disability. Um, so polio is a waterborne disease, which you um, get from contaminated water. The impact it has is it, it damages your uh, nervous system in your spinal cord and stops you from sending certain messages and causes paralysis in certain parts of your body. So I have feeling, but I have no movement in my left leg. Um, and when I came to the UK, um, I was given what's called a caliper. Um, and this was, the, the, this was a, um, an apparatus which, was, which consisted of two metal rods and it was like a splint. And these rods went into this massive hospital boot that I had to wear. And uh, it meant that when I walked, 
I walked a little bit like what well, I'd say like um, C-3PO from Star Wars <laughs> after we stood on a bit of chewing gum. It wasn't the most elegant of walks. So if you can imagine, I started school 79, 80. Um, actually, actually, if I rewind the clock before that, you know, um, when we were trying to find it or when my parents were trying to find a school for me, um, they were told that because I had a disability, I had to go to a school for kids with disabilities. My parents were not having that. They were really determined that I should go to a mainstream school. The reason being is they felt that I was going to grow up in an able-bodied world surrounded by able-bodied people. And they felt that me going to a mainstream school was going to be the best way for me to, to prepare me for later life. And so they embarked on this massive battle, which was part legal. I don't know the total ins and outs of it because I was too young at the time to know. But I, what I did know is it meant that I missed, missed probably almost the best part of a whole year of school. Um, I was home to, uh, homeschooled by my parents who were both teachers. Um, but I missed a whole, whole year of school where they fought this battle with the local education authority to allow me to go to a mainstream school. And so that was the first challenge. Um, when the school was found, it was a school based in Upton Park in East London called Creedon School. This was an old school. Uh, the building wasn't exactly accessible. It was three stories, loads of stairs. Um, and uh, I, I was going to be the first child with a disability to go to this school. Um, and so my first day of school, I was already going to be earmarked to be someone who was different. Mm. You know, I, um, this, as I said, this was late seventies, early eighties in East End of London. So I was going to be the first kid with a disability um, to go to this school. I was going to be the first, well, not the first, but I was one of three black kids who went to this school. Um, and also, I was the only African kid uh, or Nigerian kid. And I spoke with a very strong Nigerian accent. Um, and English was not my first language. And then on top of that, if you want to add, if that wasn't enough, the day before my first day of school, my mum took me to a famous market in the East End of London called Petticoat Lane Market. And she bought me a pair of ch uh, pink checkered flare trousers and a pink checkered blazer. Um, and she also bought this white shirt with this big frilly bit on the front and she bought me a dicky bow tie and she combed my hair into a massive afro so I looked like a microphone head with a side part in the size of the black wall tunnel. So uh, I, I went to school uh, with uh, a disability. I looked different because of the way I walked. I looked different because I was one of the few black kids there. I spoke with a different accent and then I was dressed like a circus clown. Um, but yeah, it was, that, that, that was an interesting first day of school. I mean, fortunately for me, I was really good at sport. And on my first day of school, I, I, I convinced a, a couple of the kids who were playing football to allow me to play football. I mean, that shows when I think about it, I must have had the gift of the gab 
because you know in East London for where when, when I was growing up you know you had to have something about you to be able to convince the boys to allow you to, to join in a football game especially if you turned up in a pink flared chat track suit <laughs> like, who is this Larry Geezer turning up in the, in, in his in, well, not track suit in a suit sorry and and, and, and so, yeah, I managed to convince them and they, st- they stuck me in goal. Um, there was two captains. They picked two teams. I was picked last. They stuck me in goal. And within the first five minutes of being in goal, one of the best footballers in our school, a guy called Stuart Harvey, broke loose. Um, and he was one-on-one against me in goal. And I tell this story a lot, but I still remember it. But there I was in goal. Pink checkered flared suit, afro bow tie I had a parka coat you know those big parka coats with mm. the fur around the hood I had the mittens attached to the strings on the coat and I was moving from right to left a Stuart blast this shot and when I remember it, it everything comes back to me in slow motion but I had these great reflexes and I managed to save what was going to be a certain goal uh, by just diving and throwing myself to one side and knocking the ball out of the goal and you know that moment changed everything. I went from this fashion freak to this schoolboy sporting hero all in one moment. So I had the obstacles of, you know, overcoming the way I looked and the fact that I was, I was seen as different and I stood out straight away. But I think sport was able to, for me, help me overcome. It was my language that helped me communicate and, and, and show to people that, uh, I may be different, but I'm worthy of hanging out with you guys. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I should be given some sort of respect. And it also gave me a load of confidence as well. You've, um, you've touched on the video that I've actually seen where you talk about your first day at school and how it, how it changed your life. And I do encourage anyone listening, if you, if you haven't seen it, do, do watch the video because uh, Addy described that. That was a brilliant description. So, uh, so the footballing sporting hero uh, dressed in pink with, with the afro to basketball because, I mean, that's what you're known for. That's what you've been decorated as a sportsman for. It is a brutal sport. Let's let's not kid ourselves, right? It's one of the most brutal things I think I've ever seen. Um, so was basketball always the dream after that world-class save from Stuart? Or, or <laughs> no, was it... Do, do, do you know what? Like everyone in this country, um, in the UK, I was football mad. You know, up until the age of 15, yeah, especially in the 80s, I was absolutely bonkers about football. And my dream, like all my friends at school, was one, I was going to go and play for West Ham. Um, and then two, I was going to I was going to captain England and I was going to be the first disabled uh, goalkeeper. And, and, and I always felt at the time that if England had selected me, we would have won the World Cup by now. You know what I mean? But what, what I realised is, uh, and my friends soon realised, is although I was quite agile moving from right to left, I wasn't great at jumping. And so they started chipping the ball over my head. And that soon made me realise that, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to be quite the goalkeeper that I suspected or I expected myself to be. Um, but I, I, I discovered wheelchair basketball when I was about 12 or 13. And in between that, actually, I was, I was actually inspired by watching um, the Olympics, the 1984 Olympics um, in Los Angeles. Um, I was 11 years old and I remember watching it on our old black and white TV and just seeing this incredible spectacle and some of the greatest athletes in the world competing. And just at that point, I realised that it wasn't just about football, 
it was I had this incredible passion to want to compete and to want to compete with the best athletes in the world. And naturally, even from a young age, from eight, nine, ten, I always I felt comfortable in the world of sport and I felt comfortable challenging myself and trying to be as fit as possible. I didn't discover wheelchair basketball until I was until I was 12. And as you said, it is a brutal sport. And and the funny thing is, a lot of people um they they see able-bodied basketball and, and it's supposed to be a non-contact sport. As you know, there's a lot of collisions in able-bodied basketball. But when people collide in able-bodied basketball, it's muscle to muscle, bone to bone, flesh to flesh. When we clash, it's cold titanium or steel um, being pushed by some guys, you know, so you get guys who are six foot seven, six foot eight, 15, 16, 17 stone flying across the court, crashing into each other. And as I, when I first saw wheelchair basketball, I'd never heard of it and I didn't even realise that it was possible for people in, in wheelchairs to play sport. And I remember being taken to this place called Stoke Mandeville where they were hosting the junior wheelchair games. I was super sceptical about getting in a wheelchair. I was like, really? How ridiculous is this? And I also felt, you know, a massive stigma around my disability and I didn't want it to, to I didn't want to stand out even more by getting in a wheelchair. I thought it was a backward step. And, and I just didn't think overall as a kid that wheelchairs were cool. And then I, I was so wrong because when I went, I was proved really wrong because I went to Stoke Mandeville where they're hosting the junior wheelchair games. And the, some of the men, members of the Great Britain wheelchair basketball team, the men's team, happened to be playing. And this was the first time I saw wheelchair basketball at an elite level. And what I saw, I was expecting to see these guys in old hospital beat up wheelchairs being pushed around. But what I saw was guys in state-of-the-art, amazing wheelchairs that were funky colours. The wheels were angled and they were doing wheelies. They were taking three-point shots. They were flying up and down the court. And imagine as a 12-year-old kid seeing a guy, a double-leg amputee with no legs, flying up and down the court, get hit by someone else in another chair at speed as he's going to the basket. He comes flying at the chair. The chair goes about four feet in the air. He flies at the chair, rolls across the floor, sparks flying, and, and then he just like dusts himself off and gets back in the chair, high-fives the other guy, and they carry on playing. And I'm like, wow. And, and you know what happened? There was this sort of click in my, my head where I suddenly switched my, my mindset and all of those like preconceptions went out the window when it comes to disability. And suddenly I didn't see guys in wheelchairs. What I saw was elite athletes. And I looked at these guys and I thought, these guys are better athletes than any of my able-bodied friends. Mm. And this is exactly where I want to be. This is the sport. And I, I, I suddenly realized that I'd found my tribe these, these are my people, you know, yeah, and, and, and the sport was physical. It was great. And, and I remember telling my friends about it. And I think, you know, no one had really seen wheelchair basketball before because uh, it wasn't on TV back then. And I think the thing that strikes people even today is the first time they go and see wheelchair basketball, one, they can't believe how fast it is. Two, they can't believe how big the players are. And three, they just can't believe how physical it is. You know, the smell of the burning metal and the rubber as people crash into each other and, and, and just, 
you know, how intimidating the players can be. And I love that. Love it. It's, it's interesting you talk about the stigma of, of, uh, of wheelchairs and yet somebody, a little birdie tells me, and, and this is documented, that you once said that uh, one of the ways you used to get around as a kid was in a shopping trolley. It was the most, uh, it was the most effective form of travel. So you'd kind of, um, but all joking apart, I just want to pick up on something you said, which was really interesting, Addy, which is, um, from from very, from a very young age, from approaching those lads in, dressed all in pink with your white frilly shirt to, to participate in a game that logic would tell you you couldn't compete in. That, that's what logic would tell you. Um, right the way through to competitive basketball and all the other things you excelled at, there is something within you, there is something within a small group of people, they're usually the successful ones, that says... And I heard a quote once, which still lives with me, which is that people fail in life not because they uh, aim too high and miss. People fail in life because they aim too low and hit. And it strikes me that everything about you is is about dispensing with what's realistic, um, not conforming, not listening to the condescending pats on the head from people who say, well, you know, perhaps you want to set your sights a little bit lower, Addy. You've always... You've always reached higher. Where does that come from? Is that the adversity that you and your family faced in Nigeria all those years ago? Is it something you were born with? What is it? What is it that, that, that drives Adi Adepitan in the way that it does? It's a good question, Sandra. And uh, I've been asked it a lot. And it's hard to always to, to pinpoint it. And, you know, I have to really delve into my psyche. But as someone who kind of... I think a lot of who we are is determined by, you know, our, our environment, our social background and, and, and our, our upbringing. I have to say some of it has to have come from my parents and that early beginning and having to, to see them deal with adversity and the challenges that they had to overcome. Um, it must have by osmosis, by, you know, watching them seeped into my, into my psyche. Um, but also, you know, I think as, 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 as kids, kids really feel that sense of injustice. Um, you know, I think kids feel injustice more than us adults. We sort of suddenly get beaten down by cynicism as we get older and we start to accept things more um, as we get older. But as, as a young kid, if someone says you can't do something, you question it. You say, why? Why? And if they say you can't do it because you have a disability, you're like, well, What's that got to do with anything? You know, surely it should be about my actions and not the, the, the things that you perceive in your mind. And, and I think from that first day on when I was at school, more than me wanting to prove the kids wrong that I could play football, it was more the fact that I just enjoyed playing sport. And I knew I was good at it. I knew I had good reflexes. And I just didn't understand why people would prejudge me. I don't know. I mean, so what if I dressed in a pink suit? Why on earth would you look at someone in a pink checkered suit and assume that they couldn't play football? I mean, are you bonkers? <laughs> but, I, but I think, um, you know, putting that to one side, I, I think it was just the, the fact that I, I felt and I really had that belief and I must have, I think, got it from my parents that, you know, I could achieve anything. 
Mm. I could achieve anything. But I think what you also have to do, and it's really, it, it happens early on. Um, when you have that naivety early on and you haven't made mistakes and you haven't felt the, the, the pain of failure early on, so you throw yourself headfirst into things. Um, and I found by doing that, you know, and going for something that I was passionate about, I challenged myself and I surprised myself. You know, saving that goal was, was that, that shot was, was great. Um, uh, it wasn't something that I'd planned. It was just something that ha- happened. And by doing that, it then taught me that if I challenge myself, then I'm going to take myself to another level. Yeah, and, and I think I learned from that day on, you know, and a lot of things in my life that actually you shouldn't take no for an answer and you should always challenge yourself, even if you don't know what the outcome is. You know, and I've done it many times. Lots of times it's worked and lots of times it's failed. But what I've actually learned is the times that I've failed, I've learned a lot more and it's given me a lot more resilience. And, and, and I've always said to myself that, I should never allow myself to be held back for, because of fear of failure. Mm. You know, I, I always think of that eye of the tiger, that, that, that bravery, that naivety that I had on my first day of school. And I harness it and I keep it. And it's almost like my superpower that I mm. keep within me. And, and it's something that's fueled me and burnt me, burnt, burned the fires within me. Um, all of my life, you know, to just constantly challenge myself. Mm. There are, there are many strings added to your bow, obviously, and I don't think we're going to fit them all in, in the time we've got together, but uh, let's talk about journalism for a second. Cause that's something that, um, you, you know, you're heavily involved in. And of course, um, people I know that regularly listen to your stories on Instagram and there's just so many aspects to what you do. Um, you've in, you've investigated a number of controversial issues for channel four's award-winning uh, series dispatches. Which which one of those, off the top of your head, was the most shocking? Well, dispatches was um, so dispatches. I did uh, some stuff on um, uh, what was it stop and search, which was which was pretty um, um, tough. Um, and then I did some stuff on 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 benefits. But there was also another series which um, called Unreported World. Um, where I did a lot of international um, journalism, and, and and there was definitely some some really really tough stories within that. You know, um, oh, where do I start? There was a story in Mexico uh, where we went undercover into uh, 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 they call them asylums over there, where they keep people with mental health problems, and and what was happening is. Um, people with mental health problems, mental illnesses, um, it, even if they were stuff that wasn't manifesting and, 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 and causing a problem within the community, their neighbours were able to report them. So, for instance, if you had, um, I don't know, a mild form of schizophrenia, or um, yeah, but you were still able to function and you were still safe 
in, in, in society and you were managing it, but your neighbour just had a grudge against you or a grudge against someone in your family, they could report you to the government and the government would send um, a, a squad round and they would literally snatch you from your house and they were throwing people into these um, institutions and sometimes lobotomizing them and sometimes locking them up for, for indefinitely. And unless their families had a lot of money, these people were stuck in there. And we, we met a group of people who had mental health um, issues themselves who had set up a pressure group to try and uncover all of this that the government was doing. And I went undercover with undercover cameras um, into some of these institutions. And it was horrific. Horrific what we saw, you know, but then there was also um, time when I went to, to Jamaica in Kingston and I spent two weeks with a, a group of gay and transgender uh, people who were forced to live in a storm drain in, in Kingston, Jamaica, um, because of the discrimination and the brutality that they felt when they were in their own community. So you had kids uh, who had run away from home, literally. 10, 11 years old, um, not because their families had kicked them out, but because of, for fear that their families would be targeted because of who they were. Um, and it was, that was just incredibly emotional. And, you know, a lot of the condemnation they were facing was coming from the church. Um, but yet, these these people were still religious every I, I remember one really emotional time uh, on a Sunday one of them would hold this Sunday service and they were like saying you know no matter how society sees us God will always love us and there's always a place for us um, in, in God's house and and it was just emotional just emotional to see these people and for me to be able to do these stories is a privilege. Um, I, the reason why I got into this form of journalism was kind of through people like Dorothy Byrne, who was head of, um, of news and current affairs at Channel 4, and Siobhan Sinerton, who basically felt that I could, you know, with my communication skills, bring a younger generation to documentaries and get a younger generation to see these stories, these global stories, which may feel like they're not important to us, but should affect us and help us open our mind and take a perspective of what's going on around the world. And so I, I, I really became passionate and felt it's really important that we tell these stories that don't get coverage in the mainstream media. With that, with that community spirit that you have and, and with all of that experience, just tell us very briefly about the Adi Adepitan Short Break Centre and all the work that you do there. Well, sure. I mean, I, I feel really bad because I don't spend, get to spend enough time there. And every time I do go to the, to the Short Break Centre, um, I, I just have a wonderful time. So it's, yeah, it's for families who have children with complex needs, you know, in terms of disability, physical and um, mental, psychological needs. Um, and these families, you know, if you, if you have um, a, a child who um, is severely disabled in, 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 on, on many different levels, it, it's, it's a 24-hour, you know, job, you know, to, to, to take care 
of, of that for the family. And what this respite centre, the short break centre does, is it gives the family uh, uh, and the parents a little break. So the kids can go there um, and the facilities that we, that we have there, you know, you, you've got um, carers there who will take the kids in art, in music. I go there and I play sport with them. And, and it just gives them a, a break away from their families. They can stay there or their families can stay there. And, and just the chance to relax and forget about the everyday strains of life and let the people who work there take on, on that, 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 that task and, and just you know, put a smile back on families' faces. Well done. Well done, Addy. Um, long may that continue. Three very quick questions to finish up because time has already gone. But um, in this incredible career of yours, what's the proudest moment? Is there one thing that stands out above anything else? Wow. Wow. Can I have two things? You can have two things. You can have three, but you can have two, definitely. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, if I'm... If I, if I, two will... Uh, the first one would be um, being part of uh, the team that went to um, to Singapore and helped win the, the the Paralympic and Olympic Games for London 2012. You know, so I was there in 2005 with Seb Coe's team and we uh, put our bid... To, to 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 the world and you know Jack Rogg made his big announcement his famous announcement where the games were coming to London. And that for me was really special because I thought it was so important that in our lifetime we were able to bring the games to the UK. Because I think it kickstarted um something in the Paralympic Games that the Paralympic Games really needed it up to the profile. You know, since 2012 people now know more about the Paralympics than they ever have. And I mm. think that's opened the door for a lot more children with disabilities. It's changed perceptions and perspectives of disability far more than, than it ever had. So that was really important for me. And the second thing for me was um, you know, getting to host my own series, um, Africa with Adia Deputan, um, not just because it was my series, but because I've always had this burning ambition and this burning desire to show Africa in a different light from the, the light that I'd seen when I was growing up. For so many years when I was growing up, I'd only heard one narrative of Africa, and that was a, a narrative of it being one, many people thought, just looked at Africa as one country, and they didn't realize the diversity of this mm. continent. You know, but two, they looked at it as corrupt, poverty-stricken, you know, and, you know, with so many problems. But I felt that the modern-day narrative of, of, of Africa should be, should, the, the true story should be shown, and that should be told by the people of Africa. And, and it's this vibrant continent that's diverse, that has so many stories, that is pushing forward into the future, that could, that, that, that's going to be at the forefront of so many things. It's got the youngest uh, population in the world, and it's such an exciting and vibrant place. And I wanted this story to be told um, through my, my series of Africa with Adia Deputant. So I was really proud of that. It was the first time the BBC had shown uh, a, a series on Africa in 10 years, and it was the first ever four-part series that had been shown on Africa on the BBC. So, yeah, I was really, really proud of that. 
So you should. I, I saw it. And I have to say, I share, I've been to 11 countries in Africa. And that's just scratching the surface, of course. But it is exactly as you say, a very vibrant, very hospitable. Um, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to go. So um, final quick cu- couple of questions. Um, first one is, I've mentioned Instagram. We've talked about the Short Break Centre. We've talked about your your journalism. How do we find out more about Addy if we, if we want to find him on social media, website, YouTube, anything like that? Well, I'm on I'm on Instagram, as you said, at Adia Depitan. Uh, got loads of live streams on Instagram and, and posting all the time on Twitter at Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, sorry, at, at Adia Depitan on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Facebook as well. My name. I have my own website, adiadepitan.com. But I've just recently, um, only in the last few weeks, started with my my wife our own YouTube channel, and it's called. A Depi fan. Um, and, I love it. Yeah, and it's and and, and we've we've started our YouTube channel. We've um, we, we we're going to document. Um, we've been documenting our lives, but we're also using it to challenge perceptions, perspectives on all sorts of things. Because you know we're an interracial, interabel couple, um, and people have so many perspe- perceptions of us which are not true. And we 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 want to ask those tough questions, talk about and, and, and tackle those tough topics and also just have a lot of fun. We're, mm. we're, 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 we have a lot of fun all the time. We have a, a lot of banter between us. You know, she's always winding me up and I'm always winding her up. Um, my, my wife, um, her, her stage name is Alex. She's also a musician, singer, songwriter. So we'll document her career on the YouTube channel as well as my own. And it's a deputy fan. You know, which uh, my 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 missus came up with. Um, the fan bit means the whole family's involved. So Olu will be involved in it as well. We'll be doing fitness sessions. All of that, anything you can think of, is going to be on the Adepi Fan channel, and that comes out every Friday. Just go, um, just type in uh, YouTube dot uh, fam and you'll find it and we've also got a website um, which is adepifam.com and adepifam on um, on Instagram which is A-D-E-P-I-F-A-M find us there fantastic that's absolutely fantastic and by the way I have to say you're looking very um, muted today because you're wearing like a plum coloured jumper <laughs> it's a shame it's a shame you didn't turn up in bright pink for this because that would have been really funny but um, um, my mum would have loved that. My mum would have loved it. Like, ah, what are you doing dressed so in this down clothes? Ah, come on. I love it. Final question, Addy. Um, it's the one we ask all our guests, and it's, it's a very simple one, really. Uh, gosh, we could have fitted so much more into this time together. We could have gone on talking all day. But if I were to ask you, uh, let's imagine a, a younger version of you comes up, plonks himself on your knee and says, Addy, Daddy, whatever, it, whoever it happens to be, uh, they are a young person seeking guidance as they embark on their journey in life, as, as you did all those years ago. Um, uh, you, you, you can't give them everything. They have to find out stuff for themselves. But if they said, just give me one thing, one thing that I could really focus on above all other things, almost like a, a way to live my life, a mantra, a philosophy, anything like that, what, what would that one thing be that really stands out for you above anything else? I would say, um, don't wear pink. Yeah, yeah, don't wear pink. Uh, yeah, uh, don't, don't, don't come your into an afro on your first day of school. No, I, I would say, 
Um, find your passion. Uh, I, I think a lot of people search for, you know, when they're looking for their career, they look for things that are dictated by money, that are dictated by fame, that are dictated by uh, notoriety. You know, we live in a world of curated perfection, um, which is um, kind of been, you know, kind of been sort of pushed out there by social media. Um, but I think you need to forget about that, throw, cut away from all the noise and find your passion. Find something that really drives you, that really, that will get you up at five o'clock in the morning to do it, that, that you will do for free, you know, that you'd actually pay people to do. And, and within that passion, challenge yourself every day. Every day, challenge yourself. Don't be afraid to do something because of fear of failure. You know, no one who's ever been successful, you know, your older self has not been, not been successful um, because everything he's done has been perfect. The mistakes you make are the things that, that, that create you as a person and helps you, you, helps you, helps you become that, that, that person you want to be. So find your passion and challenge yourself every day. Perfect ending to a wonderful podcast. I didn't expect anything else from you today, Addy. Um, again, thank you so much for joining us, for inspiring and motivating and guiding so many people listening. Uh, and I'm pleased to say, actually, we do have a number of people listening from Africa. So um, it's brilliant that you have, uh, have flown the flag for that wonderful continent as well. So from all the things you're doing, from Adepifam to the Instagram storytelling to... Um, all that you do for the sporting community, for the short break centre and everything else I'm sure you'll end up doing besides. Uh, oh, don't forget, Sandra, don't forget, don't forget to mention my books as well, my kids' books. Oh, I've quickly, got, quick, yeah, go I've on, got do three, the... I've got, I've got three books, uh, kids' books out and it's part of the Cyborg Cat series um, and it's all about a disabled superhero. Uh, first book is Cyborg Cat and the Rise of the Parsons Road Gang. Second book is called Cyborg Cat and the Night Spider and the latest book that is out at the moment is called Cyborg Cat and the Mask Marauder. All great books, lots of humour in it, amazing illustrations, and um, and the books are all about you know friendship and and showing that it's okay to be different and finding the superhero within you. Um, and, amazing series of books. And here's and what we're going to do: we are yeah. we are going to, we are going to purchase three copies of the book, uh, one of each, Ooh. and we are going to give them away as we do with many of our guests. We're going to give them away to one lucky listener. They know what they have to do. They have to share and post and, and like and all the other stuff. When they do that, we will be sure to promote your books via a giveaway, Addy. So I will be in touch with you to make sure we purchase some of those with you. And I'd love to make a donation to your charity from our own foundation. So we'll talk about that separately as well. So once again, Addy Adepatan, you've been an absolutely wonderful guest. Thank you so much on behalf of everyone listening. Sandro, thank you. Um, better than Piers Morgan. <laughs> I'll end like that. Better than Piers Morgan.